Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. To start out this week, I'd like to shout out my new Patreons, pa- I'm sorry, patrons, uh, Mark, Brandon, Mary, Michelle, and Jay. Thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome. And if any of you want to join Patreon, it is uh, patreon.com slash disastrous history. So with that out of the way, uh, this week we're going to cover one of the worst floods in American history, the Johnstown Flood of 1889. Now, Johnstown is a small town in southwesternish Pennsylvania, about 70 miles east of Pittsburgh. It was founded in 1800 by a man by the name of Joseph Shantz. He also went by the anglicized name of Joseph Johns. Yeah, he named the town after himself. Don't you worry about it. Alexander the Great walked so Joseph Johns could run. Joseph was a German immigrant and the first major groups of immigrants and settlers in the area were Germans. As the time went on, the immigrants to Johnstown diversified as more and more work became available. Soon, Johnstown became largely Irish, Welsh, and German immigrants to the area. Irish primarily build railroads, Welsh primarily in coal mining, and Germans in the steel mills. It would then go on to diversify even further with Eastern European immigrants coming in later, as well as some Jewish immigrants. The area Johnstown sits in is rich in deposits. Iron, coal, wood, and water. Everything you could possibly need to make steel. So obviously, this summoned iron and steel companies. The first major one in the area, the Cambria Iron Company, was founded in 1852. In 1854, the city received a second boom, the arrival of the Pennsylvania Railroad to the area. This really allowed Cambria to take off and truly expand rapidly. It became one of the largest mills not just in Pennsylvania, but in the entire country. It basically helped end the United States' reliance on British rails for building railroads. This also led to a boom in Johnstown's population. In 1852, the population was 5,150. By 1889, the year of the infamous flood, the population was about 30,000, which is a pretty good growth for the area it was in, especially being near Pittsburgh. But it wasn't just steel that led to the population boom. Coal mining was huge in Johnstown and Cambria County where Johnstown is located. By the time of the flood, the county was producing about a million tons of coal a year. That's a ton of coal. Johnstown also sat on the confluence of the Stony Creek River and the Little Connemaw River. Those two rivers form the Connemaw River right in the center of Johnstown. This will be important later. All this led to Johnstown being one of the largest towns of the area and definitely one of the most important. It was a small, diverse city that was a home to thousands of people working to better their lives. It was a blue-collar town, just living and working, trying to get to a better place in the world. Which obviously means nothing bad could ever happen, right? The answer to that is always, always, something terrible is going to happen. Obviously, there was a huge flood. We know that. That's what the episode's about. But where did it come from? The answer lies several miles north of Johnstown near the modern-day town of South Fork, Pennsylvania. The town of South Fork now sits in the spot where, lo and behold, the South Fork Dam used to sit. 
The dam sat 14 miles east-northeast of Johnstown. It was first designed to hold back water that could be used for the Pennsylvania Main Line Canal when it got too dry. The dam was originally designed in 1839 by William E. Morris of the Western Division of the Pennsylvania Canal. Construction began in April of 1840, but funding ran out in 1842, and construction was halted. In a quick taste of things to come, during the hiatus of construction, a partial break in the dam in 1847 would cause some minor downstream flooding, but nothing really too major, and then eventually construction would be completed by 1853. The location of the dam was chosen due to it being close to a nearby railroad for supplies, it was a narrow point in the valley with exposed bedrock on either side, making for easy construction. And it was a shaded portion of the valley, so there would be minimal evaporative loss along the Little Connemaw River. The upstream portion of the dam was, ha was to have a slope of 2 to 1. So for every 2 feet down, it went out 1 foot. The downstream slope was to have a slope of 1.5 to 1. So for every foot and a half it went down, it went out 1 foot. This gave the dam a triangle look with a flat top portion. The original design for the dam was for the downstream side to be made of stone on the slope that was 4 feet thick at the top and 20 feet thick at the bottom. Gravel was to be the layer behind the stone, 3 feet thick at the top and 30 feet thick at the bottom. Then behind that was a core of quarried stone set in cement. This would have made a solid core to the dam. Then on the upstream side was a layer of 15 inch dry set masonry on the very outside of the dam, then a layer of gravel, then compacted clay all the way down to the chlor. The clay made the dam watertight. On either side were two spillways for when water got too high behind the dam. They told it about 150 feet in width. The final dimensions of the dam are contested, but it was most likely 860 feet long, about 500 feet thick at the very base, 72 feet tall, and about 40 feet wide at the very top. At the base of the dam were five iron pipes, two feet in diameter, controlled with sluice gates to allow for additional water control. They were controlled from a control tower. So if you got a lot of water behind the dam, the first thing that would open would be the sluice gates underneath the dam to allow water to escape from behind the dam to prevent overtopping. And then if those were all wide open and there was still too much water behind it, then you had the two spillways on either side for additional water to escape from behind the dam without overtopping it to allow it to still be under some control so you didn't have a the dam be overtopped and then catastrophically fail and then you have a giant wall of water coming out of this dam all at the same time, which will be important later. Those were the specified engineering choices, but not all those made the final budget cuts. Remember they ran out of money and construction halted? That solid core was replaced with more compacted clay rather than the granite set in cement, and only part of the upstream side of the dam was covered with masonry. Eventually, the dam and the lake would be sold to the Pennsylvania Railroad Company in 1857. Then, for whatever reason, the railroad decided they didn't need the dam or the lake, so they did nothing. They basically ignored it. For five years, just let it sit there. They did no maintenance, they made no repairs, they did absolutely nothing. Basically shoved it in a drawer and said, nah, we'll deal with it later. Until a heavy rainfall in July of 1862 caused a part of the dam to collapse. 
thankfully, the lake was less than half full and caused more or less no problems, which is lucky. But also, like, don't ignore a dam in an entire lake, my guys. Like, that seems pretty obvious. This isn't a thing you can shove in a drawer and be like, ah, we'll come back to it later. And then after that collapse, they did absolutely nothing again. They made no repairs, no attempts to fix it, just nothing. Just let it sit. Eventually, the control tower for the pipes and sluice gates were destroyed by a fire in the 1870s. The area that used to be the lake became overgrown and was used as a pasture land for local farmers. Then the dam was sold again to John Riley of Altoona in 1875 for about $2,500. That's about $62,000 now. Mr. Riley apparently then sold the iron pipes and all associated valves underneath the dam for scrap then proceeded to make no repairs and sell it to its final owner, the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. Now, there is some confusion as to who actually sold the pipes. John Riley sold the area to the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club for $2,000 in 1879, which you'll note is less than what he bought it for. It seems likely he sold the pipes to make up for that loss but there are some sources that say the club sold the pipes, but either way, the pipes were gone by the time the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club took full control of the area. At the time, the club was being run by a man by the name of Benjamin F. Ruff. Ruff wanted to rebuild the dam and refill the lake so his club could draw people out to the lake. It's a hunting and fishing club after all. So he hired an extremely qualified engineer who had decades of experience in both building dams and engineering for controlling water. Yeah, that's not at all what he did. He hired a man named Edward Pearson. Pearson had previously worked in the freight department of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And that was it. No engineering experience, literally none, had literally never worked on a dam, ever. So this can clearly only end well. The plan to fill in the washed-out section from the 1862 failure was to just fill it with literally whatever they could find. They used rocks, mud, trees, hay, straw, horse manure. Basically, if it could be used to fill in the spot where the collapse was, they used it. They also filled in the culvert where the pipes used to be that allowed for the water to get out from behind the dam if it became too full. It turns out that just piling a bunch of random junk in a hole and trying to keep millions of pounds of water behind it doesn't work. I know that's shocking to you. Because the dam immediately washed out on Christmas Day in 1879. Absolutely no one could have predicted that. So to fix that, they decided to essentially do the exact same thing. They filled it in with whatever they could find although slightly less ridiculously this time. They still used rocks and mud and stumps and hay and straw to fill it, but they also used bricks and coal waste and a type of plastic clay. Plastic clay does not have very good shear strength when subjected to water, so they noticed that the original dam had used compacted clay, so they figured, ah, we'll just use this other type of clay, it's the same thing, right? And... As we learned in the Buffalo Creek disaster, coal waste does also not have very good shear strength when subjected to water. And when you're trying to hold up an entire lake 
with a single dam, sheer strength is, well, important. Now it is important to note here that two engineers came independently of each other to look at the dam in 1880. Both said it was a danger and was not up to standards. They were not working together at all. They were both ignored. Many residents complained in the years after they rebuilt the dam of sulfur water seeping out of the face of the downstream portion of the dam. This was explained by members of the club to the people nearby that it was simply natural springs emitting from the dam, which, considering the entire dam and lake are man-made, well, seems like a miracle. It is very clear that this was water contaminated with the coal waste they used to rebuild the dam that, for whatever reason, they didn't want to admit they did. I mean, it's obvious why they didn't want to admit that they rebuilt the dam shoddily is because they didn't want to pay for it, even though several of their members boasted last names like, uh, oh, I don't know, Carnegie and Mellon, some of the richest men in history. But filling in the hole with random garbage they found lying around wasn't the only change they made. You see, they decided that the best view of the lake was from the top of the dam. Obviously, they needed to take advantage of that, but there was a problem. The top of the dam was relatively narrow, just wide enough to fit a single carriage. So they lopped about three feet off the top of the dam, which significantly widened the dam, it also conveniently gave them more material to fill that hole with. This gave them a spectacular view of the lake they wanted and had paid all that money to be a part of the club for. But it also effectively eliminated one of the spillways on the south side of the dam as a way to keep water from overtopping the dam. It also dropped the amount of distance between normal lake level and the top of the dam from 10 feet to 6 feet. And because they decided not to reinstall pipes underneath the dam to help with water level control, or actively sold them instead, the only way for water to remain at the same level was the spillway on the other side of the dam, which was totally acceptable for members of the club. You see, that spillway made a nice little waterfall at the end that they could take dates to for picnics. Perfectly picturesque. But we're not done with ways this was going to be made worse. The club immediately stocked the lake with game fish, but because of that pesky spillway that was, you know, keeping the lake below the level of the dam, the fish kept escaping. So they put fish screens on the entrance of the spillway to keep the fish in. But what that also did was trap debris in the lake and prevent water from releasing, so it raised the water level of the lake higher than the fish screen. So, they then installed a log boom into the lake with more screens on it which essentially did the same thing. Now, remember those two engineers from earlier that inspected the dam and found it, well, pretty much all terrible? One was sent by the Cambria Iron Company because they were, rightfully, concerned that someone was messing with the dam. That man was John Fulton, an actual geologist and actual engineer. He wrote in his report, It did not appear to me that this work was being done in a careful and substantial manner, or with the care demanded in a large structure of this kind. Which Benjamin Ruff replied with, We consider Fulton's conclusions as to our only safe course of no more value than his other assertions. I submit herewith the report of our engineer, feeling certain you and your people are in no danger from our enterprise. Fresh reminder, they did not have an engineer. They had a guy who worked on railroads. 
But what about the second engineer who came to look at it? His name was P.F. Brindlinger. He compared the construction as to that of a railroad embankment, which makes sense considering the guy building it worked for the railroad. Both of these engineers were ignored. It was also noted by both that the upstream portion of the dam was originally supposed to be covered with masonry, had been removed, and were no longer on that side of the dam. It was covered with riprap, which is basically chunks of stone put together in some sort of fashion. A later report in academic paper refuting the findings of the 1891 report from the American Society of Civil Engineers actually found several masonry stones of the exact size and shape reported to be used on the original construction of the dam, used as foundations in the house and barn of the F.J. Unger house on the north side of where the dam was located. F.J. Unger was the last president and manager of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club before the Johnstown flood of 1889. So it appears when he went about building his house, he scavenged some of the masonry blocks from the old dam to use to build his house instead of rebuilding the dam like it was originally designed. Fun stuff. By 1889, there was a noticeable sag in the middle of the dam. The two, the north and south end, were higher than the middle, which is never a good thing for a dam. So, that brings us to the spring of 1889, which was... Well, it was wet. Very, very wet. The disaster occurred on May 31st, 1889. In the two weeks prior to the disaster, it rained eight or nine of those days, depending on the source. Either way, that is a lot of moisture to seep into the ground, and it had also been an extremely snowy late winter. So, soil saturation was, well, basically completely saturated. Any additional rain was just going to be straight runoff into wherever it could go. And because these are the Allegheny Mountains, there aren't a ton of flat areas. So water can't pool in flat areas and then be filtered into the ground that way or evaporated. No, it just runs to the lowest area around. Which, in this case, was the lake behind the South Fork Dam, Lake Connemaw. On May 28, 1889... A large storm formed over Kansas and Nebraska. It then began to travel eastward, dumping a ton of water all over the eastern half of the United States. It reached the South Fork area late in the evening on May 30th and rained all night until the early morning hours of May 31st. This storm in total would end up dumping something like 6 to 7 inches of rain on the South Fork area. Now that is a ton of rain. And with the ground already absolutely saturated with water, it was basically all runoff, right into Lake Connemaw. On the morning of May 31st, 1889, at around 7 a.m., an engineer employed by the club, oh, they do have engineers, how shocking, named John Park, went out to observe the dam after the massive amount of rain overnight. Now I should note that John Park was a brand new, just graduated engineer. So he was not like some expert. He was brand spanking new engineer. But anyway, Park observed the water line that morning about 7 a.m. to be right around 6 feet below the top of the dam. By 10 a.m., that had decreased to about a foot below the top of the dam. About 30 minutes later, F.J. Unger, yes, he of stealing dam materials to build his house fame, decided it was time to have laborers cut a ditch through the rock southwest of the dam to try and relieve some of the water behind the dam 
to prevent it being overtopped. This uh, did not work. At some point around 11.30 a.m., the water began to come over the top of the dam in several places. Unger ordered Park to make trips to South Fork two and a half miles away in order to warn them of the imminent failure of the dam and to telegram ahead to warn towns down the river. At this time, some of the rocks on the downstream portion of the dam had begun to fall off and be swept away by the rapidly escaping water. Park took off on horseback and was reported to be seen yelling that the dam was about to break and that everyone needed to take cover. He made it to South Fork and a warning was telegrammed down to Jonestown of the impending dam failure. The official timing of the dam failing is up for debate. The generally agreed upon range is somewhere between 2.45 and 3 p.m. What isn't up for debate is what happened next. The upper portion of the dam catastrophically failed, sending air blasts out and launching 3-foot by 4-foot rocks through the air and simultaneously knocking down trees in front of the dam. It would take at least 45 minutes for the entire lake to drain out into the valley. At its maximum flow rate, it reached about 10,200 cubic meters per second. That is how much water was coming out of the area per second. For comparison, just so that you get an idea, that's near the low end of the range of the flow of the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico. The minimum flow of the Mississippi is about 4,500 cubic meters per second. The average is about 16,800. Basically what I'm trying to tell you, it was a lot of water. The lake contained about 495 million cubic feet of water. That's about 3.7 billion, with a B, gallons of water. All of it coming out of the lake bed. All of this was essentially unknown in Johnstown. By 3 p.m., the water of the Connemaw River had risen up so much that there was 3 to 4 feet covering a large portion of the city. Not from the dam breaking, but from the river reaching flood stage from all the rain the night before. So the people of Johnstown were already in the midst of a disaster. Little did they know, a second one was hurtling at them right at that moment. And that's not to say there weren't warnings. At least one telegram had been sent down warning that the dam was about to break at right around 1pm. But it was, well, ignored. It had been sent forward by people in the telegram office, but the guy running the telegram office looked at it and basically laughed and didn't send it to anyone. There had been tons of warnings before that the dam was about to break, and, well, the dam never broke. But uh, this time, well, as has been a reoccurring theme in all of these episodes, if there's a warning that something bad is about to happen, you need to take it seriously because generally something bad is about to happen. The water coming out of the dam crashed out and traveled up the opposite valley almost 50 feet before turning and heading at a pace of 15 to 17 miles per hour down the valley. The first town it reached was South Fork. Luckily, South Fork was a bit elevated and therefore escaped much of the damage, and most of the residents of the town had been warned by John Park riding into the town in the hours before the dam failed. Therefore, they were able to get farther up the valley to be away from the water when it came out. But it wasn't a straight journey 
all the way through the valley. It was a winding and twisting journey through a whole bunch of forest and all kinds of stuff. The first obstacle this ball of water encountered was the Connemaw Viaduct. The viaduct was a railroad bridge across the valley. Due to it being, you know, a stone bridge, debris from South Fork and the collapsed dam temporarily blocked the water from traveling further and basically recreated Lake Connemaw a little ways away from where Lake Connemaw originally was. Unfortunately, it did not stop it for long, as the weight of the water eventually collapsed the bridge, allowing it to continue on its terrible destructive path. Except instead of just having dirt and trees and the remains of houses in it, now it had most of a bridge inside it as well. And that really needs to be emphasized here. This isn't just a wall of water, which is terrifying on its own when it's 3.7 billion gallons. It's also whatever debris happens to be in the way. There are full trees being launched ahead of this thing. There are walls and roofs and stones and literally anything else. It's not just water. It's a bowling ball of solid things. Water can do damage on its own. But when it's water with a wall about to hit you, it's so much worse. And that is the situation the small town of Mineral Point found themselves in about 3.20 p.m. on May 31st, 1889. Staring down a 40-foot-tall, giant bowling ball of destroyed everything between them and where the dam used to be. The bowling ball of doom then did bowling ball of doom things and essentially erased Mineral Point from existence. Seriously, there was literally nothing left. No houses, no trees, it even uprooted the grass and bushes. It was basically down to the bedrock. Luckily, because of the bridge a ways up, most people in Mineral Point were able to escape to higher ground before the bridge busted. However, 16 people still died in Mineral Point. And then a little further down the valley was a second bridge, bridge number six. This one performed much the same way as the Connemaw Viaduct by stopping the water in its tracks briefly and reforming Lake Connemaw for a third time. Unfortunately, all this did was create a spot for the water to regain energy because eventually bridge number six also failed, sending the bowling ball of death down the valley with further with renewed energy and even more debris. Because you see, once you stop it behind one of these bridges, it can, when it re-releases again, it's re-releasing like it's the first time. So it's just getting more energy back. So next up would be East Connemaw. This was a small town a little further down the valley. There, a train was sitting parked near Buttermilk Falls. At the controls of that train was a man by the name of John Hess. He looked up and heard a loud roar, crash, and smash, realizing that nothing that makes all of those noises all at the same time is good, he kicked his train in gear and hauled back towards East Connemaw the whole time the train whistle blaring a warning because uh, what else is he going to do? He literally tied the whistle down. Barely racing in front of the waters, Hess made it back into town and off the train into the hills escaping with his life. He is credited with saving a ton of people because he literally 
basically was in the floodwaters when he finally jumped off the train and hauled it for upper higher ground. At the time, a train full of people was sitting in the rail yard in East Connemaw aboard the Day Express. They'd been stuck there because there had been various landslides and parts of the railroad washed out from the heavy rains. They'd been sitting there for hours waiting to move on. But soon they heard a low wail, and then it got louder, and louder, and louder, before realizing it was a train horn. Then they realized it was time to get off the train and up to high ground as the bowling ball of death appeared around the bend. They scrambled off into the mud, but were blocked by another train. It was either crawl between those train cars or run around the end. Either way, it takes time, which they really didn't have in that moment. But if they did manage to get to the other side, there was another issue. A wide ditch, swollen with water and rushing like a terrible river. They'd have to jump. One woman watched her husband not quite make it and disappear into the raging water, which had to be absolutely heartbreaking. For you to make it across, turn around to wait for your husband to make it across, and watch him just ever so slightly not make it, and then just disappear. Just absolutely disappear. He was eventually found two weeks later. Those who decided they'd take their chances on top of the train instead of making a run for it, soon learned they made a poor choice. The water was so powerful, it picked up the locomotive and dumped them into the water. Houses from up valley smashed into them, launching them into the water. The official listing of the death poll of passengers aboard the Day Express says 21 deaths, but it's likely higher than that. From there, we move on to Woodvale. Wood Woodvale was the location of the Cambria Iron Mill we talked about earlier. I say was because, well, most of Woodvale was no longer located in the same spot after the flood came through. The town had 314 deaths, just about one-third of its population at the time. They had zero warning. But there's one part of the wave hitting Woodvale we really need to talk about. There was a factory that made barbed wire there. One of the factories that was destroyed when the flood came through was the one that made the barbed wire. So now I want you to imagine our bowling ball of death, water and houses and stone and people and dirt and trees and bushes and train locomotives, except now it's all wrapped in barbed wire. Oh, and at this point, it's moving at about 40 miles per hour. It's getting to be ridiculous at this point. And this is when we finally get to Johnstown. There, the single terribleness turned into three terriblenesses. One wave went towards Kernville, which much of Kernville ended up destroyed. The second wave followed the Connemaw River, went past the Stone Arch Bridge, and smashed into Cambria City on the other side. 372 people in Cambria City would end up dying. The third wave decided it was done with Johnstown existing. It smashed into downtown Johnstown, absolutely annihilating it, before hitting a hillside on the far side of Johnstown and deciding to come back to smack Johnstown a second time from a different direction. Because, you know, you gotta do double tap in that. You gotta make sure, you gotta make sure it's really good and done this time. Eventually, the water and debris all settled at the stone bridge in Johnstown. 
The water managed to filter through. The debris did not. So now I need you to close your eyes and imagine with me. Sitting up against a stone arch bridge, you have a 30-foot deep pile of debris. It's made of houses. There are bits of pieces of train cars and locomotives. There are entire trees. There's roofs. There's furniture. There are horses. There are cows. There are sheep. There are pigs. There are people alive and dead. There are screaming animals. There are crying children. There are screaming adults. People screaming for help. Begging you to help them get them out of this hell that they are in. There are random pieces of sheet metal. There's stuff you don't even, you can't even tell what it is. It's so caked in mud and just absolutely twisted and destroyed. Everything around you is destroyed. There are screams everywhere. And then to top it all off, it's all wrapped in barbed wire. So even if you wanted to help those people that are screaming at you that they're trapped inside this pile of rubble, you're risking cutting yourself more than normal because it's all wrapped in barbed wire. You got that mental image? You have that smell and those sounds and just the awfulness of that situation? Hold it for a second. Now I want you to make it worse. Because as we have learned time and time again, it always gets worse. How could it possibly be worse than that? All of the debris sitting up against that stone arch bridge, then caught on fire. All that debris piled up against the bridge burst into flames and burned for a solid three straight days. It is estimated that about 80 people who survived the flood. So imagine you get picked up in, say, East Conema. You're one of the railroad people, and you manage to get on top of some debris that's riding in a rarely calm part of the flood. So you're, you're not in the front part, you're in the back part. And you're riding it down. It's terrifying. You're wrapped up in debris. You're hit with stuff that's flying past you. There's trees bobbing everywhere. You can see the city being destroyed in front of you. You're holding on for dear life, just praying that it will end. You finally smack into this bridge, and you get hit by debris by, from behind. But you've managed to make it into a life safety triangle of some sort. You're stuck in there. You're thinking, okay, we're doing well. I'm still alive. I still have my wits about me. If I just holler and I yell, someone will be able to dig me out and save me. And then you burn to death. That has got to be the worst. You literally just survived one of the worst floods. The very, anti the, the very anti of fire. And then you burn to death. That's awful. You, I, that's just insanely unlucky. In the end, the official death toll was 2,209. 99 entire families were killed. 
no one survived from 99 families. 396 of those were children. About 750 people who were victims of the flood were never able to be identified. Their bodies were damaged beyond recognition, or they didn't have any family members left to identify them. All of those unidentified people were buried in the plot of the unknown in Grandview Cemetery. Bodies from the flood were found as far away as Cincinnati, and some bodies were found as late as 1911. That is a full 22 years later. Now, there is a story that a man by the name of Leroy Temple showed up in Johnstown in 1900 claiming that he hadn't died in the flood. He'd woken up in the pile on the morning of June 1st, 1889, looked around at what was left, and decided that he was done, and just walked away. So there is the theory that the actual death toll was 2,208, and there were many stories like this, of loved ones who never found their bodies, like found their loved one's bodies, people who survived who never found their loved one's bodies, who just would rather believe that they looked at everything that had happened, looked at all they had lost, and said, you know what, I may as well leave. There's no point in being here. I can't come back from this. I may as well go somewhere else. It was easier to believe that they woke up in that debris and said, I'm done with this, and just walked off, rather than that they had died and they'd never been able to find their body or hadn't been able to identify their body. Whether or not this actually happened more than the alleged one time, well, it's unlikely to ever be proven, but it was a thing that was pervasive throughout Johnstown at the time. In the aftermath of the disaster, the newly formed American Red Cross, led by Clara Barton, arrived to help with recovery. The American version of the Red Cross was founded in 1881 by Clara Barton, and their first major peacetime disaster was the Johnstown Flood. They arrived five days after the disaster and would stay until October 24, 1889, nearly five months later. They provided material to the people of Johnstown, like clothes and furniture and things like that. They also built various large temporary hotel structures to house citizens until the town could be rebuilt. This was a major boon for the American Red Cross and really showed that they could do disaster recovery outside of wartime situations. Interestingly, a second Red Cross showed up to Johnstown as well. The Philadelphia Red Cross showed up, and it is important to note that the two Red Crosses were not cooperative, and apparently there were several run-ins between the two organizations about who was doing what, and then they decided they would just not speak to each other at all. Luckily, the Philadelphia Red Cross was assisting with medical issues, so it didn't really come up much. Almost immediately, blame was pointed at the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club for their modifications, read, making it look prettier, to the dam. They were successfully defended and held not legally responsible for the disaster. Their lawyers argued that the dam failure was a natural disaster, which was ruled an act of God. This meant survivors got absolutely no legal compensation. And as we have discussed at length, this is a load of baloney. The club was absolutely at fault. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Sure, it rained a lot, but, uh, yeah, they, they screwed this up. After this ruling, 
public outcry was pretty much universal displeasure. The club was secretive rich guys who kept their personal assets purposefully separate from the club and never actually wrote anything down to look at. Seriously, there still, to this day, has not been found a single document from this club. Not even a list of members. It is literally anyone that publicly admitted that they were a part of the club, generally before the disaster, or were seen going up there. To combat this public outcry, states began to adopt a British common law precedent which said that a non-negligent defendant could be held liable for using land in a way that was not intended, which is basically what happened here. This ended up leading to the adoption of strict liability in the United States, basically that you can be held liable for your actions regardless of whether they were negligent or not. So in this case, they absolutely would have been held liable for their actions because their actions led to the disaster, even though technically not negligent, although you could certainly argue that they were 100% negligent in not building a dam in a way that would be, you know, accepted by literally anyone nowadays, especially not using an engineer. But anyway... The dam failure was investigated by the American Society of Civil Engineers. They determined that the dam would have failed even with the original design of the dam in place. They then spent the next two years hiding the report from the public because, and I quote, they did not want to be involved in litigation. If you don't want to be involved in litigation, don't do the investigation. You cowards. It has been determined since then that the report released in 1891 by the American Society of Civil Engineers, when they finally did release it to the public, was, well, garbage. All the changes the club made absolutely hampered the dam's ability to withstand the storm, and it's certain that the previous dam, as built, would have survived the storm and the extra water. They were basing it off of only having one spillway and generally didn't really include the actual pipes for releasing water because they made a lot of assumptions in their report that they wouldn't have started releasing water early enough. But it's likely that any reasonable person would look at the rain that was coming down and immediately open those pipes in order to prevent the dam being overtopped. They also still would have had another basically double what distance they had between the top of the dam. Because you remember the normal level of the dam was originally 10 feet between water and top of the dam. After they lowered it to fill in the hole, they decreased that to 6 feet. So, on the day of the, the dam failure, it had started at 10 feet. So, if it had been at its original height they would have had a distance between where the water level was when the rain happened and the top of the dam of 14 feet. Basically, they more than halved the distance they had to go, and they eliminated, well, six ways for water to escape because there were five pipes and one spillway, and they basically only allowed one spillway option, and they had no way of controlling how much water was in the dam at all. It was... Just whatever was there. So yeah, the dam would have survived if they had rebuilt it the proper way it was originally built. But, because yet again, 
money trumps safety, they decided not to do that and to fill it with whatever random crap they could find around the dam. And it's likely that they filled it with coal waste because they were able to get it for, well, likely free, because the South Fork Hunting Club was full of people who had connections around Pittsburgh, which included coal barons and railroad barons and steel barons who had access to all of this stuff that they could just throw in this dam to make it look pretty, to make it work, so they could have their place where they could go and hunt and fish and drink and smoke and generally do old, rich, white people things. Eventually, Johnstown was able to dig out from underneath the rubble and destruction of the flood. There now stands an eternal flame memorial at the confluence of the Stony Creek and Little Connemaw Rivers in Johnstown. The flood still stands as one of the deadliest disasters in United States history. It is, without a doubt, one of the most important disasters in the history of the United States. All disasters from that point on took precedence from the Jonestown flood in regards to negligence and actions of those who led to entirely preventable disasters. Basically, now, if you do something and it causes damage or harm to someone else, you can be held liable for that, whether or not you were actually negligent. And I have to be honest, that's probably a good thing and has helped to get victims of disasters, of big business not taking care of the people around them, to be held liable for their actions. And with that, we reach the end of this week's episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, spelled H-S-T-R-Y, uh, so disastrous spelled correctly with history without the vowels. You can also follow me on Instagram, Disastrous History. Um, you can follow me on TikTok. It's Disastrous History spelled correctly. There I make some videos on fires and different types of fire scenarios and things like that. Um, other some smaller disasters that unfortunately won't get covered in episodes because there's just not enough information. Um, and you, if you want to, you can send me an email, disastroushistory at gmail.com. Let me know how I'm doing. Um, and always leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps with other people finding the show and lets me know how I'm doing. Um, and if you want to, you can join the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash history. And as always, stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.